This is attorney Andy Markintel and attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the attorneys for freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How you doing, my friend? Fantastic, man. Ready to do another show. We're pumped up to throw some live and let live out there to the world. Love it. Well, as the viewers can see, there's a third body here in the room with us today who we want to get to as soon as possible. But maybe you're just clicking on this video for the first time. You don't know what this movement is about. Live and let live. That's a cool looking logo. I like the colors. I like the shock, shock symbol. Everything looks cool there. I'll click on it. What's this about? Mark, you want to give the elevator pitch for what this movement is? Yeah, Live and Let Live is how we are going to bring both freedom and peace to the world. We can't do this until we recognize the price of admission. What's the price of admission? Go live your life. Be the iron-fisted dictator of your body, money, property, and time. What's the price of admission? You got to let other people live their lives. They have equal rights to what we have. If you're a competent adult, you're in charge of these things, but you got to understand and recognize that other competent adults, even if they live in ways that we personally find immoral, unhealthy, unwise, you got to let them do their thing. Unless, of course, they violate what we call the live and let live legal principle. This is the only restriction on the iron-fisted dictator's right to control their body, property, money, and time. What's this restriction? Don't violate the legal principle. The legal principle basically says, drum roll please, how about don't be an aggressor? Can you handle that? Don't aggress against other people. What do we mean by aggressing? Initiating force against another person or their property, engaging in fraud, engaging in coercion, or doing anything that results in what we call, what we lawyers call a substantial risk, a big risk of harm to another person or their property. Think of it as putting another person in danger. Don't do those things. If you do those things, then we're going to stop you. We're going to do everything we can to stop you from doing those. And if we think you did one of those things, then we're going to give you a scrupulously fair trial. But if it turns out you actually did violate the live and let live legal principle, well, this should be considered a crime. And indeed, everything that violates the live and let live legal principle already is a crime in virtually every place in the world. So why am I making this point? Because if you're not violating the live and let live principle, you should be left alone. That's the legal principle. That's how we're going to get to peace and freedom. So does this mean we have nothing to say about morality? No, we have lots to say about morality. This is what we need to say to the world if we want to get to peace, right? Peace requires what we call aspirational values. So we have the live in, let live moral principle. How do we describe this? How about be a good human? Can you handle that? Just be a good human. If you had a good mommy, you know what I'm talking about. But so we list some aspirational values here, and this is what we lawyers might call a non-exhaustive list. Yeah, there might be other things on the list. We talk about open-mindedness, tolerance, voluntary kindness, civility, committing to truth and facts and rational inferences from those facts. And then also, how about building high levels of trust with other human beings? You want to have a good relationship with another human being? Build a high level of trust. You want to have a bad relationship with another human being? Screw up the trust. Have a low level of trust. Guarantee bad relationship. And also, we're committed to justice, right? Why do we care about this stuff? We care about this stuff because 
our goals in this space, this moral space, is to optimize human happiness while also decreasing human suffering. But as soon as I lay these out, I'll note you're absolutely free to completely disregard everything in the moral principle. Yep, you can live your life closed-minded, intolerant, uncivilized, and absolutely unkind to anyone you want so long as you don't violate that legal principle. Because if you violate the legal principle, we have no tolerance for you. So anyways, that is what the Live and Let Live movement is pushing out there in the world. And really what we're trying to do is take morality, at least the bigger points of morality, out of the law. We recognize that what's left still is, still are moral ideas, but these are what you might consider the least common denominator of morality. Show me a successful moral code that doesn't outlaw initiations of force, fraud, and coercion against others. We civilized people, in fact, I'll say all civilized and reasonable people agree with the live and let live legal principle. That's why it shouldn't be a lot of controversy here. So the live and let live movement is an effort by lots of good people all over the world to try to make this thing, peace and freedom, finally happen. We have lots of chapters right now, uh, at least 10 different countries in Africa, lots of countries in Europe, in Canada, in Australia, and uh, several in the United States as well. The movement kicks off in March of 2023. Get involved. If you like this, if you've been listening to this show, join the movement. No big deal. Go to liveandletlive.org. Give us your name and email and check the box that says, I know what the principle is and I agree with it. And you are a member, the newest member of the global peace movement that is Live and Let Live. Blast it out on social media. Tell your friends, tell your family. You got some extra money sitting around. You don't know what to do with it. Donate it to the 501c3 Live and Let Live Foundation. Be part of the solution. Stop crowing about the problems and join the Live and Let Live movement. There's my elevator pitch. Very nice, but uh, I'm going to throw in a couple of flourishes to that. I think that you hit all the major points, but just to get people thinking about the principle and how it's so important. First of all, this legal principle, right? We got these legal principles you're talking about and these ethical principles. What's another way? You, you gave a very in-depth kind of lawyerly way, and I know you could go on for give us the two-hour version um, or the book version, which is coming soon to a bookstore near you. But to condense it down to its lowest level, stripped away of all that dicta, um, you could say it like this. For the legal principle, the only role of a government, the only role of the state, if they're in so far as one exists, is to stop one person from aggressing against another person, stopping or, you from stealing my stuff, hurting me, hitting me over the head, defrauding me, creating a large substantial risk of harm. That is the only role of the state. I would agree, but add one little point, which is the point I thought you were going to add. Not only to stop oh, people. Hold on. Yeah, oh, hold okay, the, that, of course I'm going there. All right, you're going there. Look at the groups written right ah, there. I'm, I'm getting right. there in a second. Um, and you know that's my favorite part to bust you on it because is. that's where we lose most people. Right. But back to this real quick. The idea that the only role of a government is to keep person A from stealing person B's stuff or hitting person B over the head or stopping aggression is an important one because our laws, at least in the United States right now and no place in the world that I'm aware of, are calibrated to this 100%. Yes, it's true. We all agree that murder is bad and robbery is bad and all those things that are traditionally seen as bad. We all can agree on 
on those. But there are many laws right now that go beyond simply stopping aggression, that go simply, and and a lot of these laws are aimed at instilling morality in the citizenry, saying, we as the government know better than you do how you should live your lives. We as the government know a good way for you to be a productive, healthy, morally healthy type of a person. To that we say, nope, has no place in the legal principle. And the reason it doesn't have a place in it, Mark, is because everybody's got their own idea of morality. Everybody's got their own idea of what's good, what's bad, what's moral, what's immoral. And if we allow people to import their own morality into the law, it'll just be a never-ending struggle of person versus person about whose morality will reign supreme given the regime. And that's what we got now, right? The R's have ideas about how you should live, and they're trying to import those into the law and force them on everybody. And the D's differ. They think they got the right answer. And what we're saying to both the R's and the D's is, look— do everything you can to convince your neighbor about what's proper in the moral realm, but you don't get to force it down the person's throat. And this is true even if you're an individual or a group or a corporation or a government. Just because you formed a group doesn't mean you get to violate the legal principle. Let's pause on that for a second. This is so important, so important. And if you've seen this show before, you always see me halt Mark and say, let's take a minute yeah. here. And here's why it's important. Because this is where we lose most people. The average person out there in society lives by the live and let live principle in their personal life every day. Right. The average person out there is a good, decent human who wants to, as uh, the Christians might say, live by the golden rule, treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. And that's how most people operate in their day-to-day -day yeah. life. But for some reason... There's a disconnect in the average person's head that if there's something, a group of people with enough people, they're allowed to engage in aggression all of a sudden just in virtue of the fact that they're a group. And what we're saying is, nope, no group is going to escape. Just because you've formed a group of some people, maybe it's a very large group, and you call yourself a government. Even if you voted on it, right? Even if you voted Even on it. Even if the majority it. agree to violate the live and let live principle. It's still not the right thing to do. Agreed. And then final thing I wanted to touch on with regard to the moral rules. Yes, as Mark said, it's absolutely true. You uh, could completely disregard these rules and be uh, intolerant and close-minded and not dedicated to truth or facts and, and, and completely espouse racism and bigotry and all kinds of nasty worldviews. And we're not going to give you any sort of a formal consequence. Absolutely no, but true. We'll, and we'll defend but your you, right. We'll defend your we'll, right. We'll defend your right to do so as long as you don't harm another person in doing it but you bigoted racist piece of scum guy who i just uh described are not part of our movement we can't use you we aren't interested in affiliating with you we will defend your right to be unreasonable yes, and immoral but you're not part of what we're trying to achieve this is a peace movement that's right and so in order to get the peace we've got to promote these moral nice values. ad brother nice ad. all right that all being said that elevator pitch turned into an essay a long elevator ride yeah <laughs> let's get that was a tall building. Tall building. <laughs> Let's get uh, Dr. David Harrison. Dr. David um, is the senior pastor of Connect Church in here in Arizona. Doctor, welcome to the show. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. I have become a quick student of Live and Let Live over the past couple of months when I got introduced to what you were doing and uh, your goal of what you want to do around the world. Appreciated the uh, reminder just of how fast this uh, message is spreading. People want to know about peace, right? Great. And so I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation and, and the exchange 
change that we might have in the midst of it, and it'll be a fun time. Love it. Um, why don't you just start by introducing yourself? I, I've read your resume, and there's a lot of cool stuff on there. Why don't you just start by introducing yourself? <laughs> well, my name's David Harris. I grew up in the hills of southern Ohio and made my way to the West Coast and married a California girl and stayed out west. And so I've been privileged to do some things both uh, nationally, domestically, internationally, mostly in the using the church and vehicles of the church for leadership development, as well as working with AIDS orphans in Africa and things along those lines. I've been blessed to spend uh, time on a few different continents. Not a ton. I don't want to overstate that, but it really, really has helped shape me. And everywhere I go on a global scale, why it's relative to this conversation, is I find even like when I was in China, for instance, the people there wanted to know David the American. They weren't interested in the American government or American politics. They just wanted to have a conversation with David. And they wanted, one, they wanted to practice their English on me because all Chinese people have to take English uh, because of the world trade. Mm. And then uh, they wanted to just know about what families were like in America and what shopping was like and what kind of food we ate. You know, they just wanted to know me on a human level. And there was no animosity. There was no uh, anger, anything like that. I noticed that uh, the people I was with, one young lady went on and, and tried on a sweater in a store at, at a Chinese mall in Beijing. And when she put it back, 20 Chinese women went and tried it on. Wow. Yeah, they fought her. You know, <laughs> wow. so Parents, their, parents around the world want the same things for their children as American parents want. They want them to be healthy. They want them to get good jobs, good careers, raise children. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. And on the domestic front, you know, we have uh, multiple cultures within uh, the United States boundaries, right? With Northeast and different from the South, it's different from the West and whole mess. And so, you know, getting the language and people's understanding through the filters of culture in the United States sometimes is as difficult as getting the language filtered through culture on the global scale. And so we get a chance to do some of those kinds of things with the, some of the organizations that I work with. So thank you for the opportunity to share that. And then Mesa, a selfless plug, you know, Connect Church, we're relatively new. We got really got started in October of 19 and 10 minutes later, COVID hit, right? Yeah. So we're just persevering uh, through all of this as we get going and just now starting to get some traction back. Oh, that's great. You know, you mentioned something that I always find so interesting. I have been fortunate enough to travel so much of the world. I've been in many, many different countries now. And, um, you know, you travel the world because you, you want to find out about different places and different people. But if you're paying attention, you know what you find out? How similar people are all over the world. They may be different in skin color and language and the foods they eat and all of this and the cultures are different. That's all true. But what struck me by traveling so much was just how similar, like you say, the average person in almost any country, what do they care about? They want their kids to do better than them. What do they like to do? They like to hang out with their friends and they like to eat good food and they like to listen to music and they like to have a good time. That's what most people do around the world. And I think that we'd all be really well served to travel more so we can really understand and appreciate the differences and, and celebrate the differences between other human beings. I mean, I often step back and think about just how incredible it is that we're alive at all, right? With so much matter in the universe and very little of it, an infinitesimally small percentage of it conscious, right? And so here we are conscious. And of all the humans who have ever been conscious, that's a long period of time. We happen to be conscious at the same time. And we happen to cross paths at the same point in time, at the same place on the planet. 
We should be having a party. You know, like how dogs, when they see other dogs, are like, wow, look at you. I got to go over and say hello. <laughs> we should be like this as humans. And, and I feel this way when I meet other people. I just can't believe, you know, how disappointing it is that in 2021, as we sit here, that there are still so many people on the planet who care about such meaningless things like immutable characteristics, right? What color your skin is, what your eyes look like, things like that. It's just very frustrating and one of the things that you know we hardly talk about that I'm so proud of just to be involved with the live and let live movement is how we all everybody in the movement consider ourselves post-racial like we don't care where anybody's from it's just so wonderful and I feel like I'm getting so many friends from people all over the world of who speak in different languages and sometimes they're hard to understand but we're all working together for things that we care about freedom and peace we want to leave the planet it better than we found it. So kudos to you for making that point. Uh, thanks. With uh, regard to your comment about skin color, I was in parts of China uh, where they had never seen a white person before. Yeah. And they were just curious, right? Sure. And, uh, and, and uh, somebody said they had seen white people uh, on TV one TV time or something to that effect. And they said, you all look the same. And that's what they told me in China, yeah. in there through the translator. Right. And, you know, just a curiosity factor. Right. We laughed and found, you know, drank a lot of tea together. It, right. was, it was really sweet. You go, you go to the most rural place that you can with people who've never seen anybody like you in real life, and at the end of the day, you want the same things out of life. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, so uh, let me ask you this. Yeah. What do you think about the Live and Let Live movement? Because I talked to Joey. I should I should point out. So Joey, as people who watch this show know, he's our brilliant, I would call him uh, our engineer around here. The best. Here. He's, the best. The, he's, he's the reason for all of this in, from in, the audio to the Independent sound. events. We should mention them and throw a, throw a, throw a bone out there. Um, and so you have a relationship to Joey. You're his pastor at his church. Is that I right? am, yeah. Joey got involved in helping us set up. Similar to you, he set up our, our lights and helped our sound and all of that stuff. And we liked him, and he liked us, and stuck around. And two years later, he's been to more church services than I have. Wow! So, <laughs> so, you're the, and you're yeah. the pastor. And I'm the pastor. <laughs> it, uh, I don't know. He might be gunning for your job over there. Right, Joey? <laughs> well, it'd be a certain upgrade. He's that great of a guy. <laughs> so um, he mentioned to me, and this always gets me excited. He mentioned that you had a few critiques of the movement. Yeah. You think there's a couple. I think he said blind spots or something that needs to be addressed to make you more comfortable with hopping on board. And, what's what's your thoughts? And before he gets to that, we should just say as a footnote, and maybe we can put this in the description, we did a show previously with a good friend of mine, Richard Stevens, and really you could title that show, uh, If You're a Christian, Here's Why You Should Be a Member of the Live and Let Live Movement. And so people should watch that show so they know what we've all, you've watched that show mm -hmm. and we were there for that show. So people can understand sort of a foundational argument about why, if you're a Christian, you should should be totally on board with the live and let live, both legal principle and moral principle. So yeah, tell us your critiques. Yeah, well, first of all, let's go back to Richard for just a second. Okay. When he started off with the Ten Commandments, I thought that was absolutely genius. Excellent. And he talked about how five of them apply between God and man, and the other five, man to man. And I thought, just outstanding uh, job of, I'm going to be one of those people that email you trying to get uh, get a lunch with him. Oh, for uh, sure. He, outstanding. He would, he would love to. He would love that, yeah. on, And on the other side of the, of the coin, let's, let's first of all, let's take a bite out of the elephant, right? I'm a novice. I heard a principle. It had the word peace in it. One of the phrases you hear about uh, as a follower of Jesus, you hear this time of year is Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Right. And so I wanted to know more and became a student and had the conversations that led to us being here. 
And so I am on board with about 90% of it. The other 10%, I'm not necessarily not on board, but I have questions. Yeah. And uh, maybe there are things that I'll learn about my own faith, and maybe there are things that I'll learn about live and let live. But I'm probably not the only one with questions like this. But I just thought that was a great place to start. I was captivated in actually researching a Christmas message apart from this conversation uh, on the topic about Jesus being the Prince of Peace of the issue of peace. And in doing my research for that particular message or conversation, as I call them at Connect Church, you know, I, I read an article or a piece of an article from the New York Times in 2003 that said in the last 3,400 years of recorded history, there have only been 260 years of peace. 8% of humanity has known peace. 92% of humanity has not. And with the live and let live principle, what is the objective standard for good human behavior so that we can begin to advance the issue of peace? Because globally, it hasn't worked, you know, 92% of the time in all of human history. And I think that would be a, a phenomenal place for me to gain better and deeper understanding. So in other words, what does peace look like? Is that, is that what maybe you're— Well, I don't know if you're describing—I know you're describing peace as, as the absence of conflict, or are we talking about peace as the non-aggression parts, and I, I understand the caveats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a great question. So let's let's start with this, kind of 30,000-foot view of how I see this issue. There has been a movement uh, worldwide mm-hmm. um, that they call themselves, and they like to think of themselves as the freedom movement, okay? What, is it, what does it mean to be for freedom? Because a lot of people can say that they're for freedom. Adolf Hitler said he was for freedom. Saddam Hussein said he was for freedom. So um, the freedom crowd, the folks who are actually interested in it, some, uh, I think, uh, good faith libertarians consider themselves part of the freedom crowd, voluntarists, um, people who are interested in enlightenment values, things like that want to get to this state of freedom. Freedom is basically being able to act in your life free from coercion, okay? Now, there are responsibilities in freedom to live in a free society, and that is the second part. you got to let live, too. You can't enact coercion. And the freedom movement's great. We love what the freedom movement's all about. If the freedom folks had their way, if the if a freedom movement uh, were to be codified in a legal system, we're all going to live much better lives. We're going to be able to have a lot more freedom and pursue our happiness. But they've always missed something. The freedom movements have always missed something in our view. Peace and freedom are two completely different things. Mark oftentimes gives a uh, the example of the neighbors who are back and forth who, you know, say you, ha- you uh, hate your neighbor and you get out of your house every day and you see him watering his lawn and you yell, hey, screw you over there, you jerk, blah, blah, yell back and forth. You never trespass on his property. You never punch him in the face. Maybe you want to, but you refrain. You never aggress against him in any ways other than just be generally unpleasant. Uh, that is the... Uh, state of humanity that we want to avoid in pursuing a in a peaceful world, right? Because if we followed everything that a good libertarian, for example, wanted to codify in the law, we would be left with a free society, but not a peaceful society. The, in the example I just gave, there's no way you can claim that these neighbors are at peace, even though neither of them violated each other's rights. So we're more interested in a world not only free from aggression, but that encourages values, and that's what the second part of the move, the, the ethics principle of the Live and Let Live movement, that encourages values that encourage people to be at peace, that encourage values to, and things like open-mindedness, tolerance, learning about people, traveling the world, learning the beauty and cel- celebrating differences between humans. So I think that's kind of the end goal of, of what we mean by a peaceful society. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I'd probably add a few things just to 
go back and put my little spin on what Andy is saying, and I agree with everything he said, but I would describe uh, freedom as the condition where basically competent adults are, as I described in the summary, the iron-fisted dictators of themselves. I mean, if you're a competent adult, you should claim the, the, the right to control your own body and, of course, your property and your money and your time. Why do, we, why do we add that? We don't just recklessly add that. But if you're in charge of your body, well, then you can make a deal with someone else. I have lots of deals with people here at this law firm. People say, well, look, I'm in charge of my body, but I'll give eight hours a day to this law firm in exchange for money. So they've traded, in essence, their freedom to do whatever they want instead to come in and work at the law firm. And we've ex- we've exchanged money for their labor. That money is as much theirs as is their body. If they take that money and go buy something with it, they've exchanged something. That something they bought is now theirs, just like their body. They should be in charge of that. And so if we could get there, right, where nobody is trespassing on another person's body, property, money, or time, really we could just say property, right? Because your body is your property, your money is your property. Then we get freedom. And freedom's great. Freedom is an excellent goal. But as Andy points out, it doesn't really get us to where, to peace, right? Because we could still be shouting insults at each other and not at peace. Peace requires something more than freedom. If peace requires what I would like to say, some small aspect of, I care about this person. You know, I, I have something to say about their welfare. I have some interest in it. That maybe get us to peace. But the truth is, if we, if we ever get to peace, I'm going to start talking about something different. I'm going to very much close ranks with a lot of my Christian friends here because love should be the goal. Love, to me, think about your relationship, right? If you have a loving relationship, are we hitting each other over the head with aggression? No, that's not consistent. We got to first get to freedom where we're not aggressing towards each other. Then we got to get to peace where we're, we have some level of care and concern. We're tolerant towards each other. But if you want to get to love, you got to amp up this peace thing even more. Love requires what they were talking about in the Bible, brotherly love, brotherly love, and, I, and of course means sisterly love as well. Well, we really do care about the welfare of our fellow brothers and sister human beings. In fact, I personally um, would even extend this further to the non-human animals in the world, like life. We should love life and love all other living creatures. I assure you, the, the minute we get to peace, I'm going to be pushing brotherly love because that's where I'd like to get. Now, we're not utopians, right? We know we're never going to get to a perfect world. I got a critique the other night at a speech that I gave, and somebody said, Mark, look, the elephant in the room, some people are still going to aggress. Well, of course some people are still going to aggress. These are the humans, and we're all imperfect humans, uh, but these are humans who act really imperfectly, right? They're aggressors. And so we're not, we don't have any illusions that we're going to get to utopia. People are going to aggress. It's a question of, How do we deal with them, right? And who do we label a criminal? Someone who aggresses against another person is a criminal, not somebody who violates someone else's moral views. Like, for example, um, prostitution is always a fun one to use, right? Because people think prostitution and they think pimps and this and that. And of course, if you have a pimp who's injecting violence into a transaction, well, that violates the legal principle. But if what you've got is a two competent adults, both of whom own their body and their money, and they want to exchange services for fees, they want to do sex for money, 
we might find this immoral. You might say, you know, this is horribly immoral conduct and uh, violates our, our religious principles, and we do everything we can to discourage you from doing it, no problem. But at the end of the day, if they say, thanks for all of your arguments, uh, we've, we've rejected them and we're going to engage in this act of prostitution, we, we need to conclude that this should be legal, right? Because if we don't, if we say prostitution is immoral and therefore it should be illegal, now what we're doing is saying our moral views, which we may agree with, right? We're imposing those on other people who don't agree. And the reason this is so bad is because, as Andy said, people disagree on morality. There are people in the world, some of whom say, take, are in the Muslim faith, and they like Sharia law. And they may say, look, I find it immoral if you fail to wear a headscarf and you're a female and you go outside. And I want to put my morality into the law. So I want a law that says all females must wear headscarves when they go outside, otherwise it's a crime. So we only have one of two things we can say to this person. Number one, we can say, sorry, um, our morality goes into the law, but yours doesn't. Now, we know how this is going to play, right? This is going to create this. This is what we have now. What we currently have. This, we're all fighting to get control of the government so we can impose our moral views on other people. And this is an endless war. The other option is, look, maybe this is a very nice moral view, but we've all agreed for the sake of getting to peace and freedom that our, even the moral views we agree with, like for example, helping the poor. There's one that I definitely agree with, right? There are less fortunate people on the planet than us and I think we should help them. But I'm not going to force you to do that. I'm not going to take your money against your will and divvy it out to wherever I think it should go because now I'm injecting my morality into the law. So what I say to the person who wants Sharia views into the law, I would say, sorry, we've all agreed, even the ones, especially the ones we agree we like, right? Those are the ones we're trying to put into law. Our moral views are also outside the law. Therefore, yours should be outside the law. Only thing in the law is what we might call the basic, least common denominator. And I, and I admit, you know, the law against murder is, a moral, is morally based. This is true. We can't really escape this. But it's the least common denominator. It's the thing all reasonable people can agree on. Why do I say that? Well, because if you don't agree with a prohibition against aggression— by definition, you're not reasonable because reasonableness uses words to resolve disputes. You can be reasoned with. If you support aggression, by definition, you, you can't be reasoned with. You're using force. And so this is why I feel confident saying all reasonable people agree with the live and let live legal principle. So look, there are some unreasonable people. We call them um, people who commit thefts and rapists and burglars and robberies and murderers. These are people who don't agree with the live and let live principle. To them, I say, sorry, too bad that you don't agree. I'm okay with telling you you can't do these things. But as to all of these other moral views, we got to convince people. We have to persuade. And again, you know, if your morality is not good enough to persuade others, then I would say something's wrong with your morality. And, you know, the Mormons have a saying for this. They say that Joseph Smith said, teach them correct principles, but let them govern themselves. I love that statement. The Christians have a saying generally. It's called the golden rule. Treat others how you would have others treat you. Do you want people to aggress against you? I don't think so. Well, then don't aggress against other people. That's all we're saying. I, does that clarify it? Well, actually, I'm on board with all of that. You use a term 
uh, I listened to several of the podcasts, and many of these viewers have listened to them too. And you've probably picked up that we use the term reasonable adults. Yes. And this is a very rational, uh, almost linear thing. Where does human emotion play into this? For instance, you could have a parent who is would say, I live by the live and let live principles. Yeah. They're having a bad day, and next thing you know, they're screaming at their four-year-old in an aisle at Costco – and it an, comes off as an act of aggression. They may consider it discipline, but they just lose it in a moment of frustration. Where in the broader scope does emotion play into this reasonable thinking? People can be as emotional as they like. In fact, I like to say do whatever you want with only one exception. Don't violate the live and let live legal principle. So if the parent becomes emotional and that's all they do, they yell. Well, yelling doesn't – well, it's not – consistent with our approach for peace, right? And we would try to discourage that. Words alone don't violate the live and let live legal principle. So I wouldn't say the police ought to show up and arrest the parent. On the other hand, if the parent pulls out the belt and starts really beating on the kid, okay, this probably goes well past what we might call as reasonable discipline for a child. And now we can conclude that the parent is violating the live and let live legal principle. And this is where the police show up and take them away and say, sorry, just because it's your kid doesn't mean you get to beat the snot out of him. And with an important caveat here, and we can speak personally to this, and no, great knowledge of this subject as criminal defense attorneys, because let's say the parent has never, is totally uncharacteristic for the parent, and the parent is otherwise an excellent parent. We call this mitigation. So in other words, Mark mentioned earlier, if you're accused of violating the live and let live principle, you're going to get a scrupulously fair trial. We need to be dedicated, dedicated personally to justice in our society, and that's win everything that needs to be presented to get a just result, an appropriate result will be presented. We call this mitigation as attorneys. This is presenting stuff like, yes, while it's factually true that there may have been a violation of the live and let live principle, for example, um, the history of this person should be considered. The good tendencies, the mitigation, the personal mitigation to lessen the sentence and give something that's more appropriate. But um, you can be as emotional as you want as long as you don't violate the live and let live principle and, and local societies are going to recognize, successful local societies are going to recognize that um, there are different levels of violation of the live and let live principle. Some of them we call, uh, as a legal term, de minimis. This is a small little violation, and a local community might decide, listen, even though we're all in agreement here that there was a violation of the live and let live principle, let's say uh, somebody accidentally uh, strays over a corner of your property, the local community might say, we're all in agreement there's a violation here, but we, we don't prosecute those things just as a matter of course, just as they might say, look, we recognize that there might be violations. Parents have tough jobs and everything like that, but we don't think throwing them in prison is appropriate, especially when there's so many mitigators and they don't have a history of doing so. This is, these are the types of things that are going to be settled by local communities. Yeah, and we want to encourage that parent, along with everybody else, to act in accordance with the aspirational values, right? I mean, uh, act with open-mindedness, act with tolerance, act with voluntary kindness towards everybody. If you can, you don't have to, and you shouldn't get arrested for it, and you shouldn't be violating the law if you act horribly. Like Andy said at the beginning, this is the price we pay for admission. I mean, there are hard questions in there, right? There are people on the planet who will completely reject the aspirational values. Like Andy said, the white supremacist, the, uh, you know, the horrible, intolerant, unkind, uh, closed-minded, these types of people, 
have every right to their views so long as they don't violate the live and let live legal principle, right? So you can hate blacks and Jews and Latinos and everybody who looks different than you, but you don't get to put your fingers on them. You don't get to do those kinds of things. And so we can't regulate what people think. We can't, it's just like the First Amendment, right? When we take Voltaire's statement and say, I I disagree with what it is you're saying, but I would defend your right to say it till the death. It's the same exact thing here. If we want a free society, we got to try to convince people to act better. We can't force them to act better. We can insist that they don't become aggressors because at that point, now they're interfering with another person's right to live their lives. This was phenomenal. Again, I'm a novice. I've self-confessed that. I'm listening, and as I heard your explanation— yeah, you guys, obviously, being attorneys, you're talking more on the legal plane, the governmental plane. Um, and I, my question was rooted in more in the, the human existence and how, what is innate within people. Then how does that play out in the live and let live? Because, you know, not everybody's Mr. Steady Eddie control their emotions 95 totally. percent of the time. And I'm not talking about a crime of passion or domestic violence. Those are obvious aggressions, but I'm just talking about the normal human being or the school teacher who has a bad hair day and takes it out on her classroom, stuff like that. How do we work through those kinds of things? How do those people adapt and adopt this internally? And then if they do so, what's it going to take for us to perpetuate this, not just globally, but generationally? Well, we have musts and shoulds, right? The legal principle lays out the musts, right? You must not be an aggressor. You don't have a choice to be an aggressor. I mean, of course, people can be aggressors if they want, but if we catch them, we get to do something to them. So I think that's very important. But everything else, everything else besides people violating the principle is in the realm of we try to get them to act better. So people can have emotional outbursts or act badly or say horrible things. All this is true. Um, now, keep in mind... Yeah, I mean, we're not utopian here. We understand right. the, the principal doesn't contemplate that the teacher isn't going to have a bad day and take it out on her class. All we're saying is if the way she takes it out on her class violates their rights in, in, in the sense that it, she puts her hands on them or it vi- destroys their property or something like that, there's going to be a formal consequence. Yeah, I think it's important to note there are private rules, right? Like, for example... Um, here at the Attorneys for Freedom law firm, this is a private law firm. And so we can make additional rules here as a, as a property owner. You know, I can say, look, there's no swearing, there's no screaming at other people. If you do, we're going to tell you that you got to leave. Sorry. And so the same would be true at a school, right? So whoever's running the school can tell the teacher, look, we don't accept this kind of behavior and you're going to lose your job or you got to leave or something like that. But the law doesn't get involved, nor should the law get involved unless and until that legal principle is violated. Like the law should never get involved. So what does this mean in terms of criminal law? It means we got to get rid of victimless crimes. That's what it means. Everything else can stay, right? The law against murder, that violates the rule. Assault, trespass, rape, robbery, those all violate the live and the live legal principle we keep those victimless crimes like prostitution or gambling or drug use for competent adults. While we would discourage that, I would certainly I mean, I don't want people to misunderstand what we're saying. You know, and, and I think I, I get frustrated when 
someone argues to legalize one of these victimless crimes, and then the argument on the other side is, what message are you sending? You're sending a message it's okay to do this stuff. That's completely wrong. That you are in a free society allowed to do something doesn't mean it's a smart thing to do. We can both discourage something as a bad idea, strongly as possible, while still saying, as a free person in a free country, you have every right to do things that are bad ideas. Like, for example... Yeah, I mean, I, I think about something that Richard Stevens talked to us about, which is that morality only means anything if you have the opportunity to screw up. That's this right. is a basic Christian virtue. The reason why we have free will is because it wouldn't make any, it would be of zero value if everything was just dictated by God, that we were basically just automatons set in motion and had no opportunity to fail. That free will only means something. And morality and faith in God, for example, from a Christian perspective, only means something if you have a chance to screw it up, if you make the the choice to be righteous, if you make the choice to behave morally. That's when it actually means something. So, Mark, when you talk about victimless crimes, are you talking strictly from a legal sense or yes. is there what? Because from a human condition, I want to know about spillover effect. Yes. Right? That's the thing that pops in my head. Great the man point. who has a gambling addiction and he's got a family that's about to lose their home, he can't feed them, or if you have a substance abuse issue, or the prostitute who eventually has a daughter and the spillover effect with the emotional scars and the feelings about men in general and those kinds of things. But you guys are talking strictly from the legal perspective, not the spillover effect, the human condition. You know, why do four-year-olds, you get three of them together, and next thing you know, they're stealing one another's toys. No one taught them to do that. No one taught them to hit the kid that took their toy. There, there's aggression that comes from the human condition that plays into this. How do we factor this into the live and let live and the peace principle? It's an excellent question. You want to take a crack at it first? Yes, there, yes, I do. There's a lot Yeah, there's a whole there. lot to unpack. So, um, of course, there are bad effects from lots of things in the world. Um, like, for example, ingesting harmful substances into your body, right? If you're a competent adult, what we say as a legal matter, you can definitely ingest harmful substances into your body. But this has spillover effects, right? You have obligations to other people. This isn't going to help you in your life. There's going to be all kinds of other problems. All this can happen. But to, to try to outlaw that is to say that the law ought to ought to force you to live a good life, right? I mean, who knows what a good life is? So you must eat healthy food. You must not do this, that, and the next thing. So there is one area that we should talk about that I don't think we've ever talked about on the Peace Radicals. You know, when I lay out the legal principle, I'm talking about what you might call serious violations of the live and let live principle. This is don't be an aggressor, force, fraud, coercion. But there can be other violations of the live and let live principle, which abut your question. There can be less serious violations of the live and let live principle, like contract violations, right? If you breach a contract, so you make a contract and you breach that, what you're actually doing is stealing the benefit of that bargain from that other person. We can fix that. We don't have to change anything in contract law. That's what we do. If you breach the contract, then the other side is awarded damages. They get what's called the benefit of the bargain damages. There's also tort problems. And by a tort problem, I mean injuring another person through negligence. There are also what we call fiduciary duties. 
if you made a kid and you're a dad mm-hmm. or a mom, you have obligations to take care of that kid. If you don't, you're violating the live and let live rule in a civil matter. We don't put no, you in jail. No, not necessarily. You could be violating it you in, could. A, in a criminal matter. You, you so could. For example, so we can all agree that if a competent adult who owns their own body uses drugs and they don't have anybody who's relying upon them or anything like that, they don't create a substantial risk of harm, they don't get in their car afterwards right. and drive it down the street, um, that that is not a violation of the live and let live principle. Probably morally ill-advised, and I would do everything I could to convince them to abandon those habits and live a more productive life from my view, but that is what it is. It's my view, so I can't impose it upon them. However, in the law, we have something that would make this exact scenario immediately become illegal, and it's in what Mark is talking about here with a fiduciary duty. We have a concept that if you create a relationship where somebody is depending on you, there's certain um, times where we would impose the law on you for violating that that duty. So affirmative if you, so, ab- obligations. So if you decided to have a kid, then now you've lost the privilege under our society to just use drugs all day if the result is going to be that child is going to be harmed. If you decide you're just going to use heroin all day and not buy food for the child and the child suffers a harm, well, guess what? You're now in violation of the live and let live yep. legal principle. Another one of your examples, and I'm sorry to jump in. No, 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 that, that was such an important yeah, point that no, you know that, that we have these concepts of fiduciary duties. Well, actually, right? Andy, I actually think that was a great clarification for. Yes. I don't know who your average listening audience is, but as someone who's really new to relatively new to this, that's a great point of clarification from my understanding. Yeah, I'm and glad you asked the question. There, there was another uh, great example that you asked about, which was a prostitution scenario. Right? We could imagine all kinds of iterations of this. Some that violate uh, the live and let live principle, like for example, when Mark was talking about whether there's a violent pimp or something like that who was coercing the women into this, um, and then uh, ones that don't violate it. Like if we have two competent adults who aren't comp- who aren't harming anybody else and make a independent decision between the two of them to exchange services for money that we might think is immoral and ill-advised and try to talk that person out of it. But then another part that you talked about, which is, okay, but what about the after effects emotionally? So if um, a woman, for example decides to enter into a life engaged in prostitution, um, she's certainly going to feel massive emotional uh, pain, probably as a result. I mean, I can't say that uniformly everybody's different. There's a good likelihood based on what we know about that type of a Mm -hmm. lifestyle that in the very least will be unfulfilling or in the worst can be emotionally completely devastating. Now, this is a choice. We have to we have to recognize that this is a choice. And just because it results in something that's the the conduct could be immoral, it could be very ill-advised, part of the ticket to ride in a free society is that some people are going to screw up the freedom that they have. Mm-hmm. And what we should be concerned about as good moral agents and why we put such a strong focus on the ethical principle is because she's a fellow human being, we should try to ap- approach that person and convince them to live a different life. That's exactly what you are doing, I presume, with your ministry. You're trying to help. That's people. our hope. I'm, I'm sure that people come to you from all kinds of situations sure. in life, probably quite a few of them not that pleasant. 
and you have a wonderful role in a community as somebody who's interested in morality, right? You're focusing, you're trying to you're trying to start something and and maybe take somebody who's made bad choices and help them make better choices. So um, that's we have to draw that dichotomy, though. And uh, this but, is this is where voluntary kindness comes in, yeah. right? Someone may abuse their freedom, and they they bet the farm on uh, the roulette wheel and put put it all on black or something, and they lose, right? Or uh, they used drugs and screwed up their life, or they did something else ill-advised and screwed up their life. And they might have a kid at home after they put, bet the farm and lose it on the roulette wheel, and they're not able to provide for that child anymore, in which case Mark and I would say, well, then they violated yep. the live and let yep. live principle because well, of fiduciary duty. Or they rode their motorcycle without a helmet on, which they should have every right to do, ill-advised. But if you crash and injure your head, or just like if you gambled the farm away, or you screwed up your life because you took drugs, you don't have a claim on another person's help, right? You have what you have is a hope that other human beings will help you and they should help you. That's why we're talking about voluntary kindness. That's where charity comes in. That's where churches come in. That's where doing the right thing towards other people come in. But as soon as we make that an obligation, right? Now we're subsidizing the bad conduct. What we're saying is to the person who rides the motorcycle, look, you can take that risk if you want because if you injure your head, Everyone else is going to be forced to subsidize the consequences of that bad choice. And that, that doesn't make sense in a free society. And by the way, See, this has been the traditional historical role of the churches in all societies for all of human history. Yeah. It isn't until a recent, the last couple hundred years with welfare states and everything like that, that the, the role has of taking care of the lowest in our society or the most downtrodden has somehow switched uh, from the people and, and localized communities of maybe religious folks over to the state. Well, right? See, Andy, you don't know this, but you're actually beating one of my drums, because I have I have gone on record for 25 years now saying if the church was actually doing the job that it's called to do in the gospel in the book of Acts, the United States wouldn't need welfare. Yeah, right. Quite frankly. Absolutely. Now, I was laughing a minute ago, because you, you hit a button I could have used you 20 years ago, ah. when seatbelt laws came in, and I got like three or four tickets simply for not wearing a seatbelt. I wasn't swerving. I wasn't speeding. Uh, I'm assuming that would be a modest example of the kind of thing we're talking about. It's a victimless crime. Totally. It's my choice if it's I was— It's your body. Yeah. Now, now, you might come I into my— I paid hundreds in fines. I could have used this. Yeah, now, you <laughs> might come into my car, and I might say, sorry, man, you got to wear your seatbelt. And you might say, well, it's my body. But I might say, you know, it's my car, and I'm not willing to take you for a ride in my car unless you wear your seatbelt. And, you know, Andy and I did a whole show on this where people are calling and saying, uh, look, you guys are the attorneys for freedom. I'm very upset because this particular store— or restaurant requires me to wear a mask, to which we say... Is it a private business? If it's a private business, then the private Who property... Makes the owner, rules? They make the rules, right? It's like sometimes the gun guys get upset because there's a sign outside that says no guns allowed. They want to sue. They think they have some right. Look, you don't have a right to tell the private property owner what rules they should impose. What you do have a right is to not do business with that person. That's called freedom. That's called a free society. Either we take the position that I know what's right for everybody, I'm going to impose my morality on everybody, in which case... Everybody else is going to take the position. They're going to impose their morality on me. Or we say, hold on, everybody, time out. 
Let's not impose on each other. Let, let's let's impose this one rule about aggression, right? Because that's the thing that prevents us from actually being in charge of ourselves. Let's impose that rule. But everything else, we got to convince. Let me take a minute here just uh, while we're on the subject of private business owners. This is an important time, I think, to note that the laws of the United States, when it comes to private businesses being able to do what they will with their own businesses— is not calibrated currently right. uh, completely to the um, to the live and let live principle. For example, there are laws on the books that force people to trade with people that they might not want to trade with. Uh, we all remember the cake uh, case mm-hmm. that That's came right. out that made it to the Supreme Court where the argument of the plaintiff was, he should have to do business with me whether he wants to or not, right? And this is, it's all, a lot of it is based in the Civil Rights Acts, right, that say you're required uh, to, there's certain immutable characteristics people have, and we're not recognizing your preference to not do, um, do anything with uh, people from those particular groups. And we would disagree with this being codified into the law, right? We, this would fall into the ethical category where you we would do everything in our power, not only probably to convince you to change your mind, but if you failed to change your mind, we would do everything in our power to make you suffer horrendous social consequences for your bigotry and closed-mindedness and do everything we can that we think would lead to peace and lead to open-mindedness and tolerance of others. But we would be the first to defend your rights to do so. If a if a Nazi wanted to open up a bakery and say, I don't serve to Jews and everything, we would think that ill-advised. We would fight against that person in a social court of persuasion. But we would never say it should be codified in the law that we're going to force another human being to use their time, money, and property how we think they should sp- use it. Speaking as a Jew, I'd represent him. So he had the right to, 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 to ensure his right— to reject having to do business with Jews. I would love to do that as a Jew because it makes an important point, right? It's Mark a- actually has represented white supremacists and Nazis. <laughs> I absolutely have. I, I have represented people with the Nazi tattoos on their arms as they're telling me how much they appreciate the job I did for them, and I tell them back, just FYI, Jewish guy represented you. Just want to let you know. And it's fun to watch them sort of backtrack. Well, that's not the way I feel, but that's okay. You have a right to any crazy view you want, uh, no problem, as long as you don't initiate force against them. Like, that's the best we can get in a civilized society. So in a, on a global scale, though, let me step just a little bit out of my comfort yeah, zone. Please. I got just enough knowledge of this to make me dangerous, right? <laughs> the United Nations. After World War II, they're established, and their goal was to bring global peace and that type of stuff. And there's been zero, actually, since they were formed. But they also have this statue outside of their building, and across from it is a monument that's uh, built from the words from um, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament of the Bible, chapter 2 and verse 4, about what world peace will look like on on a personal level. And how do we take this message from all of the different cultural understandings of what is to be and what is not to be, built on a even a self-righteous sense of morality in many cases, but get it in such a way that people globally can break through their cultural filters 
and with the United Nations referring to an Old Testament verse that's somewhat obscure to most people, begin to build lives on this so that they are not uh, in conflict with people. They aren't living lives of aggression. The four-year-old who hit his buddy because he took his G.I. Joe learns that that's not appropriate even if they did take your G.I. Joe. And how do we begin to instill that, not just in Arizona or the United States, but on a global set, when there are so many different understandings and the United Nations hasn't been able to do it in, you know, almost 100 years? The United Nations is an implementation issue, right? This is saying that sure. they're they're not trying to implement it in an effective way, and that's almost certainly true. Because um, <laughs> they have the wrong principle. That's the bottom line. I don't care. You know, but, you can. Everybody's for peace, right? But if you don't, if you don't out, this is why we say we're the world's only real peace movement. There may be other peace movements that claim to be, hey, we're a peace movement. But if you don't outlaw aggression, you're allowing people to hit each other over the head or groups to do this. There's no way you can possibly be for peace. You're not even for freedom yet. You're you're initiating force. So show me another peace movement that absolutely outlaws aggression, whether by individuals or groups. And I'll say, you know what? We'll change it to the world's best peace movement rather than the world's only real peace. <laughs> well, actually, my pushback on that, with all due respect, yeah, I mean, that's what Christianity actually is. It's the peace that actually takes the extra step, as you pointed out so nicely, to love and if we could somehow, as a people, get ourselves to lose the judgmental helmet that so many of my fellow evangelicals would wear, I think we could be a huge factor in serving the live and let live principles. I want to talk I mean, about that. St- I want to talk about that. Sure, go ahead. What would you describe as the judgmental helmet that, that uh, some of your fellow evangelicals suffer from? Look, I understand. Uh, first of all, I, you know, I'm, I'm a person by choice. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I believe in peace, and I believe in love. I believe in treating your fellow man, the golden rule, all that stuff. I understand, in my opinion, sadly, but I understand that not everybody's going to accept the teachings of Jesus. Not everybody's going to follow Jesus. And there's a piece of me that has to respect that, and a piece of me that has to somewhat accept that. And so I can't go imposing things. First of all, within the Christian faith, we, you know, how many different splintered groups of denominations there are over some middle C when you got 88 keys on the piano. So we, we have troubles getting along internally with people we call brothers and sisters, right? right? So to be able to do that in a, in a culture such as this, so we can't be casting our expectations of what it means to live a, a life consistent with following Jesus on people who aren't claiming to live lives that follow Jesus, who are living by their own moral code. So here would be my assertion that within the faith community, the Christian faith community, we have uh, the moral code that includes the peace and the love. And I would say someone who lives outside of what we see as the, the moral code from Christianity, that the whole peace movement then actually provides an objective standard for how to do life together and how to do life cooperatively. But we just can't be casting judgment. Let me give you a very, very personal example. Obviously, 2020 was a very tumultuous year in a lot of ways, right? No doubt. And it's trickled into this year, COVID and racial tensions, political tensions, all of those types of things. And so as as a pastor, I try to be apolitical when I'm speaking. There are people in my church who have no clue how I vote. Most of them have no clue how I vote. But we lost multiple people uh, in the last six to eight months, some who thought I wasn't, as I jokingly say, Fox News enough, and others who jo- thought I wasn't CNN enough. And that's, that's a great way to put it, by the that's way. That's yes. bringing 
that's bringing a judgmental approach into what I think is a pretty objective standard uh, based on biblical understanding. Your objective standard has to do with the peace and the law, the lack of aggression and coercion and fraud. And so we impose that, and then it becomes a judgmental style of living. We see people through the lenses of our perception of right and wrong. And so we respond accordingly. I was in a UPS store today, lines out the door. There are two young ladies trying to work with two customers who are having problems with their package. And the guy in front of me just went off on those young women. There was a postal guy putting letters and mail in the boxes that they have there. He starts yelling at that guy to come and help. He doesn't even work for them. And as, and I'm thinking about the conversation we were going to have here this evening, I'm seeing that kind of aggression. Another customer said, hey, just be a little patient. You know, it's a difficult time. It's none of your business. I mean, it's just, it, was a, it was an awkward time. And in anticipating our conversation here this evening, I couldn't help but filter the thought of, of his behavior in that moment. But back to what you asked me, I have good friends from multiple faiths. Jewish friends and right on down the line. When I was in China, actually one of the things I did by choice and thoroughly enjoyed it was I actually went to a Buddhist monastery in China and sat in on the equivalent of their church service. That's awesome. Uh, I didn't I bet that was a great experience. It was a phenomenal experience, and I learned a lot. And I have I have practiced mutual respect with my friends from other faiths, and but on a personal daily basis, we try to impose a lot of things just by certain adjectives we might use or things that we might say that tilt the bar just a little bit. And when it comes to how this thing then filters into politics and from politics into potential laws or governing, then, you know, I learned a lot from my African-American friends during this. Uh, I host my own uh, Facebook Live thing on Wednesday nights, and I would bring my African-American pastor friends from across the country in, and we would— out of mutual respect, like this conversation, we would talk about some of the differences. And then where do we come together? What does reconciliation really look like? What does it look like not to live in a society that's blind to color, but a society that braces multiple colors? Yeah. And so to do those things. And so we cast judgment. Usually here's what we do. When you say we, what do you, who do you mean? The evangelicals? I, I'm speaking for the evangelicals, okay. of which I am uh, by choice a part and primarily believe in. And I've got my own faults, right? Many of them are just blind spots I don't know of. But we, we will frame things and just throw in an adjective or an adverb in such a way that tilts it some, and so there's judgment or aspersion. I have a biracial niece, and my parents growing up, they live in rural southern Ohio. And that was not the norm in rural southern Ohio, mm. you know, 25, 30 years ago. And so my, my mother, to her credit, really learned when she would refer to uh, an African-American kid at my niece's school or some, to say the, the young man over there in the blue flannel shirt instead of saying the black kid. The black guy, right. Right, like that. Sometimes it's just the little things that we throw in like that. I have, um, I have gay and lesbian friends. I don't introduce them as my gay and lesbian friends. Right. I introduce them as my friends. And so we we have to learn how to do that in such a way. One of the things when I listened to one of your previous podcasts and, and your friend Richard was here, he talked an awful lot about how, what it meant in, to embrace people, basically to accept them where they are. And if our morality really mattered, we would be an example 
and we could lead them to a form of understanding if, mm-hmm. that, if that was our purpose, but we shouldn't impose that. Yeah. And I thought he said very eloquently how I've attempted to live my life, which is why I'm sitting here with you guys. Um, and so I, I just found that fascinating. Here's it's, what I thought you were going to say when I asked about the judgmental hat. Here's my perception of the judgmental hat that many uh, evangelicals would wear. They just don't like homosexuals. Yep, they just think it's sinful go. and wrong and disgusting and immoral and things like that. They just don't like prostitution. They think it's sinful and disgusting and wrong and immoral. They just don't like people who use drugs. Same critiques. And this is something that um, – this is the judgmental hat that I think a lot of people on the left criticize folks on the right for having. And what I always say to people who are like yourself, who are keen to the fact that there's kind of a difference and that you can't impose your religious moral viewpoints on people as a matter of law, is that folks like that who find the conduct uh, disgusting or immoral or whatever it is, they have a great opportunity here. Because those are the people that if they were to stand up and defend the conduct that they think is morally reprehensible. That's what we need at for least freedom. Le- at least legally that's, yeah, that's what we need in the freedom movement. We need people who disagree morally with what's going on, but will be just like he was talking about being the Jew who uh, defends the white supremacists from serving Jews at their restaurant. That's being a big boy and a big girl in the freedom world. I'm not. If you already agree with uh, gay marriage or something like that, and you think uh, everybody should be able to get married, or even better, that the government should have nothing to do with marriage in the first place, and then you stand up and defend gay marriage, that's awesome. Love it. That's great. But I'm not really impressed by it because you're just defending something that you already agree with morally, right? But if you found it to be religiously counterintuitive or you found it to be morally wrong or sinful or something like that, but you had the wherewithal and you were a strong enough freedom advocate to stand up and say, just despite that and despite that I will do everything to try to convince people away from that lifestyle— I will legally defend their right to do that. Uh, that's our well, crowd. Your that's our crowd. Yeah, that's <laughs> our crowd right there. Well, the objections that you said and related to, unfortunately, are well-deserved, or at least that's how they're primarily portrayed on television in the media. Um, I would say that there are broad, broad sections of the evangelical church that are actually changed. It's the hyper right side of that, so to speak, that embraces that. And I don't think that you can— uh, be like I couldn't be accused of being someone who's not living by Scripture is because I didn't go. I would actually take the uh, the approach that I don't. If I want to impact somebody's life for the good, I don't do that by fighting with them. Nobody wins an argument on Facebook, right? No one, <laughs> and no one's ever been argued into saying yes to a particular faith through a Facebook argument or a Twitter argument. Same kind of way in personal relationships. And so, if I am constantly putting up the keep out sign then at what point do you begin to open your arms and say you're welcome in? And so we, my perspective is to be welcoming and encouraging. Whether I agree with the behaviors based on what I believe Scripture to say or not, I treat you first as a person, mm-hmm. and then if at your interest, we'll talk about the other. And so, but you guys are handling all this at the legal perspective, and which uh, I'm a fish out of water here, but I'm fascinated with the conversation. Yeah, I mean, aren't I okay if I'm a member of your church and I say, look, I'm completely committed to the scripture. I think a man laying with another man is committing a sin and I'm against it and I would try to talk anybody out of it and I would maybe hold signs that say, you know, don't be gay, it violates God's law, whatever, all that's fine, but 
I stand up and I say, you know, pastor, um, I recognize that people who are gay have every right to still be gay. I mean, I'm not going to put my ethical views, even the ones I feel very strongly about, the ones very clear in the Bible, uh, no man shall lay with another man, that's a sin. Even though I feel very strong about it, I'm not going to advocate for a law that, say, bans gay sex or something like that because they have, they're have they not violating that legal principle. Can I do that? Are I still a solid Christian even though I don't support a law that bans that or prostitution or drug use or any of those things? Well, one of the things that Jesus taught his disciples, and he taught the people, not just the 12 around him, but the large grouping, a broader sense of disciples, was that they were to obey the laws of the land. And it was really important in the Old Testament. It was really important in the New Testament, especially as they were going through all the persecution from the Roman government and the Caesars who were doing incredible things to this new movement of people. And so they were still compelled to pay their taxes. They were still compelled to obey the laws of the land, to obey the government. And so from a Christian biblical perspective, while there are things in Bible that I think people are violating with lifestyle, lifestyle is still legal. While I believe it's wrong to go out and have uh, sexual relations with somebody else's wife, it's still a legal thing. But even if—first of all, Jesus might feel differently if he was speaking uh, post-Holocaust, right? He might say, well, you know, there are some times when obeying the law is the wrong thing to do. But putting that aside for a moment, that doesn't really address the question about whether or not if we had the opportunity, we would make adultery illegal. Right. That's the issue. It's not just a matter of, well, it's legal now. And so we got to respect the law. The question is, should we advocate for it to be illegal simply because our morality, no matter how strongly we believe in it, our morality leads us to this conclusion. Therefore, we want to force our morality on everybody else, right? Because obviously the people committing the adultery, uh, maybe they don't follow that rule. They say, you know, we think it's just fine, whatever, uh, or we don't care about sinning or we don't care about morality or any of those things. If they're not violating, if they're not initiating aggression, right, shouldn't they have every legal right to do it, even if they don't have a moral right to do it? That's the key part, making the distinction between the legal and the moral. That's the re- that is you're, really you're the not price. A, you're not a fish out of water here. No. You, you are exactly the type of person that we need yep. to get this message across yep. to. You're somebody who has strong moral convictions. And it, to, for this movement to be successful, we need to get good, morally motivated people like yourself from all walks of life, not just Christians, right? We had a Muslim in here, Zudi Jasser came in and uh, we've, we, we Jews and everything. We, uh, we really don't care. We want to get good, morally motivated people to understand the concept that just because I don't like it, there's only one way to a free society. I've got to say that it's going to be legally tolerated. That's the most important thing. Well, first of all, I actually respect and appreciate that you uh, are open to multiple faiths. I mean, while I am very, very sincere and fervent in mine, I respect it. There are others. My wife would ask me, what about the person who grew up in Saudi Arabia and they weren't raised in Christianity? I'm not, no, I don't know that I'm in a position to affirm Muslim faith from a personal perspective, but I respect that position because that's where they are, right? In terms of the adultery thing, then what about the implied contract? You're actually stealing another person's wife or the wife who would be involved, for instance, is breaking the marital contract with her husband. How, where does something like that play that's, into that's fraud, her, force, that coercion? Is, that is a contract between the two of them. 
That is her moral. They're not illegal. That is her moral okay. failure. That, I mean, has anyone initiated force or fraud or coercion? I mean, if there's no force, fraud, or coercion, and no nobody creating a substantial risk, then I would say, it, it while it's it's a serious issue, right? I, I would say this is a really serious issue. It's in the moral realm. It's a moral failing, is what I would say, not a legal failing. So, what's the difference between me walking into Walmart and stealing some bed sheets, and you walking into my house and stealing my wife? Well, the bed sheets can't consent to be stolen, right? The bed sheets don't own themselves. Your wife does. And so when you walk into Walmart and steal the bed sheets, you're, in, you're initiating force against another person's property. That's a theft. That violates the rule. But your wife owns herself. She owns her body. She is the iron-fisted dictator of her body. She made, maybe made an agreement with you. Now, of course, she could have made a different kind of agreement, right? I know people who have marriages that allow them to have sex with other people. That's the nature of their agreement. They have every right to make such agreements. But if your wife made an agreement with you, she's violating that agreement with you. Okay. Period. Horrendous her- moral atrocity. We might. I mean, th- there's sweeping consequences to families that yeah. that are broken apart. That we would definitely want to advocate for in, in, to to get to peace in a good, strong society. But this is a moral failure. Yeah. So I- one of the things that's helpful for me, having watched some episodes, trying to become a fast student of the yeah. Live and Let Live, is really we can believe in whatever level of Anything. morality and yes. even live by it. But we understand we're not violating any kind of a legal standard, even though we might be violating a moral or human standard. Yeah, you got it. You got 100%. it. 100%. And, and let me also— I think that if, if I'm one of your viewers who's new like I am, I, I actually think that's a very, very helpful distinction Good. Awesome. to understand the difference that we can violate a morality— that may be up here, but a legal standard may not be as high as that morality, but it's our job to assert the legal standard. The, the legal standard and we're is— not, And we're not acting as enablers. We're not acting as right. uh, you know, yeah, pacifiers. Yeah. On that, you, you said something that I wrote down because I don't think I agree with it. You said something to—you know, you were talking about the, the judgmental hat of, of evangelicals, mm-hmm. which I appreciate your— you know, it's very good to be aware of these types of critiques of your own, um, you know, at least your tribe's viewpoint. You said we can't be casting judgment on other people. I don't think I agree with that. Yeah. I think I would encourage you to cast judgment on people to, for example, talk them out of drug use if it's ruining their life or making their life meaning- meaningless. I would encourage you to cast judgment against racist people and people who think that black people, for example, are not equal to white people. I would encourage judgment to be uh, no, cast as, as this. So, I mean, it's... It's all about, though, as soon as you step and say, and therefore, because I feel strong about this, I'm going to force you to do it, whether you want to or not. I'm going to use the law, the power of the state to impose my moral views on you. That's where we got to. Yeah. And so let me throw something else on the table, because I know a lot of Christians are very upset and unhappy with this idea of gay marriage. I don't see any reason whatsoever that a Christian would be required to recognize somebody else's marriage. I think it's perfectly fine for the gay couple to say, we got married, we got married, and for the Christian, and they could go through the ceremony and do the whole thing and whatever they want to do, and they can exchange rings, change their last name, share property and all that, and still perfectly fine for the Christians and the entire Christian church to say, sorry, we We don't don't recognize that marriage. This violates our definition of a marriage. 100%. so, So if you join our our church maybe you can't join our church we don't allow you or if you do you got to pay the two single memberships or whatever it is you got to do because 
We don't recognize your marriage. And if the marriage. gay couple came in and tried to impose on the Christian community that you must recognize yep. that they're no better than a gay cu- couple walking into a cake shop and saying, we've decided how you're going to use your property and time today yeah. in your business. You so, will serve us. So to be clear, we side with the Christian baker who says, I don't want to bake the cake for the gay couple. We side with the Christian church who says, we don't recognize the gay marriage of, of those people. Maybe we won't. You know, we have other rules about adoption. We're not going to adopt out to a gay couple. Any of our members have kids for adoption. They don't go to gay couples. Whatever. We would defend the rights of the Christian to take these positions because they're not violating the legal principle. You can do anything you want to do so long as you don't violate that legal principle, period. This allows the most flexibility for other people to determine what their morality is and to fully exercise, as Andy says, judge, don't judge, implement it, argue with people, talk to the gay couple and say, you guys shouldn't be claiming you're married, you shouldn't be gay, you should do this or do that, whatever, no problem, just don't violate the legal principle. You could see how if everybody followed this, we'd, we'd still have disagreements about morality. We could still have arguments and discussions, and but we don't get to impose our views. If you want to put your morality out there, you got to convince people to follow your morality. And so to say that, no, 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 that's not good enough for me. I need to force my morality down the throats of other people by putting it into the law is the same as saying, I don't have any confidence that my morality is good enough to be persuasive to other reasonable people on the planet. That's how I look at that. Yeah, that's a good point. We're almost out of time, gentlemen. Dr. David Harris is who we've been talking to. He's the senior pastor at Connect Church here in Arizona. There's another shameless plug for you. Everybody go and check it out. Uh, is there any website yeah. or anything you'd sure, like to Sure, you plug? can go to connectchurchaz.org, and we've got YouTube channels. We have all the social media stuff. Someday we'll get uh, we'll go over the next hill and um, have a little bit more community impact. Uh, we, we, do a, we build a whole lot of who we are about serving our community. Love and it. so we're very we're very involved with suicide awareness uh, matters. We're, we actually uh, partner with the Mesa Public School Systems and out of the dark uh, folks. We do a whole lot with the uh, homeless and Phoenix Rescue Mission and places like that. So we try to live out our faith. I was thinking about driving down here about the conversation we're about to have, and that thought trickled through my mind. And a whole lot of what we build uh, who we are on as it relates to this conversation as well is in the uh, book of Acts around chapters uh, 4 and verses 32 to 35. It talks about the church doing A, B, and C. And then it says this really, really telling line that I try to live my life by. And there wasn't a needy person among them. It talked about how they responded in ways that were appropriate to every person's need. Mm. And so I was thinking there's got to be some parallel between what the book of Acts and the New Testament is teaching and what the peace movement is about as we relate to other people and treat them. And if we could respond to people according to their needs, I think that we could be in the... In the words of uh, another famous person, we could all just get along. Yeah, voluntarily. Vol- so vol- be- correct. So correct. The, the 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 role that you serve in a community promoting voluntary kindness, voluntary sure. charity. This is going to be so important to help convince our brothers and sisters on the left to embrace something like right. the Live and Let Live movement. And and if you just look at the history, as we alluded to earlier, this has been the role of the religious communities and the churches for the majority of human no, history. Absolutely. For the majority of human history. The state being paternal and being your daddy and taking care of you from cradle to grave is a relatively recent phenomenon on the grand scheme of things. It was always handled up until that point by the religious communities. And yep. whatever community 
communities people want to form to recognize that we should take care of and be empathetic to our fellow man is going to be very crucially important. Sure, it was a religious community that built the first hospitals, the first universities, uh, right on down, the first orphanages, all of those things that we look to as, you know, kind of a building blocks in our culture. They were originally built from the religious community historically. Let's yeah. get done what we need to get done to help our fellow brothers and sisters voluntarily. We don't have to put it into the law and force everybody to comply with our moral judgments. If we can, if our moral judgments are good, let's get enough good people on board to get it done. Another important thing here, nor are we saying that it's required, religiosity is required right. to start one of these That's types right. of charitous uh, organizations. Sure. We encourage sure. people of all backgrounds, religious or not, to form these types of things. But I think if folks want to see anybody who's going to say, oh, it can't be done. We can't take care of the lowest in our community without the government instituting a giant welfare program. They need only look at the history of what religious communities have done in humanity's history to see that that ain't true. Absolutely. And to their point, one of the things that's been most oppressive, impressive to me over the last 20 years is I know I have no idea about the individual's religious standing, so I'm not casting a statement about that. Hell's Angels folks do a phenomenal job at Christmas time. You know, so. we've represented a bunch of <laughs> so, those guys. And just have, I'm just saying. You, you can, from any walk of life, if, if your goal is to help sure. your fellow man. And, Which is and, what I was saying. Yeah, you, you I, know, I love it. You know why? Nobody is all good or all bad. We're all imperfect humans. We're acting imperfectly. We're all a pile of good stuff and bad stuff. It's a, it's too simple in a total fiction to say this is a good person or this is a bad person. We should always keep that in mind at all times. All right, everybody go check out. Uh, and so uh, what's the website name? We'll show it at the bottom. That'll there, be www.connectchurchaz.org. All right, fantastic conversation today, Love gentlemen. It. Dr. David Harris, it's good to have you on board as a novice in this movement. And when you learn more about it, we we want to have you back. Yeah, I'd love to come back and, ha- and have a second conversation. You totally. guys are absolutely fascinating What a to great me. time. All right, everybody go check out liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more. You'll find all kinds of excellent stuff on there, including information on how to start a chapter in your local area. Don't just sit idly. Be part of the solution, not the problem. We've also got some great events coming up. Uh, you'll see we have a book coming out soon if you want the really long-winded of Mark's uh, <laughs> version of Mark's summary. Uh, um, we've got all kinds of great stuff coming out, so keep an eye on the website. Until next time, my friends, Attorney Andy Mark, until an Attorney Mark J. Victor, our guest, Dr. Harris, we are the Peace Radicals. Peace! Peace.